0: Welcome to
1: episode 44 of the Bulak podcast, a podcast about books in, from, and about the Arab world. This is Ursula Lindsay. I'm in Amman, Jordan. I'm in the studios of the Sot Network. And with me, as usual, from Rabat, Morocco, is Marsha Lynx-Queli. Hi, Marsha. Hey. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about independent publishing uh about little magazines that have had uh, big impacts um and uh this is partly inspired uh by an exhibition uh and a sort of big project that I uh, learned about recently uh here in Amman. Uh there's an independent publishing platform called uh, Kaifata, which we have actually um, discussed before. We've discussed some of their books on here before. And um, it is run by two artists, um, by um, Maha Moon and Ala Yunus. And they put on an exhibition here in in Be- both in Beirut actually before this and in Amman um, that's called How to Reappear Through the Quivering Leaves of Independent Publishing. And as publishers themselves and as artists, they decided to focus on many different kinds of independent publishing, uh, both in the past and in the present across the region. And uh, this was sort of right up my alley, and I think probably yours too, Marsha, would have been if you could have seen it, Um, because, you know, in addition to loving books, I think we both also really love other kinds of publications and magazines, and you put out a magazine now, (laughs) a a literary quarterly, and, and I started out as a journalist writing for independent magazines in Cairo. Um, I contribute to magazines in the States now, um, and I think we also both subscribe and read quite a few different ones. Um, and anyway, so the exhibition had a lot of different um, parts to it. It sort of looked at different kinds of publishing. It looked at self-publishing. Um, there was a sort of very interesting story of this Egyptian writer I had never heard of, who wrote um, kind of schlocky novels, it sounds like, but would publicize them by writing his name on a kite and flying it during soccer games so it could be caught on
0: television. Um, Had you ever heard of this writer? I had not, although I have heard of this mode of bookselling. I know another author, an Egyptian author, Mona Prince, who would have uh, advertised her her works particularly at at, uh, football matches and have like tons of them in her bag as well.
1: Well, I mean, I found this quite, quite touching story and it's, we can put this in the show notes. It's it's written about in some of the reviews of the show, um, this figure of, he sort of seems like a kind of amateur writer or maybe one who was quite commercially successful but doesn't seem to have you know acquired any serious literary reputation and uh and 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 also gave himself this nickname so what was it was it adib al-shabab the yeah, the writer yes. of the of the youth oh, yes and and he would put that up on this kite and fly it and advertise his works and um so there's that sort of you know aspect of of sort of, because that is one of the things that I find almost magical about publishing is the fact that when you really think about it, the barrier to entry is actually quite low. Like, there's nothing to stop you from writing yeah, something. I think there's, and-
0: there's many uh, authors, you know, whether this uh, an author like this guy who never became part of the establishment, or or authors who did, uh, who started out making their own zines um you know hand photocopy hand copying them or photocopying them handing them out on street corners uh i mean it, it it's funny because it is a, a sphere in which there is a tremendously high barrier to entry right it, in terms of becoming an uh, an author who's distributed globally who's really known as a world author who breaks into one of these top 5 publishers becomes Successful, whatever that means, and then a tremendously low barrier to entry because anybody can make um, some kind of PDF, upload it, print it, put it on -on print-on-demand, photocopy it, hand it out. Uh, So, so and and a lot of people have. Yeah, and I mean, I even think
1: about how you know when you're a kid and you make your first. Books like my son is in the period where he like he's like writing stories and drawing pictures for them and like putting titles on it and like stapling all together and like making his own little books. You know that there's this sort of very playful, original impulse, like as you read and you discover books to make your own books.
0: Um, Absolutely, and, I mean, uh, I was very much a teenager of many zines. <laughs> mini photocopied zines myself who left them out at spaces for people to pick up oh really that you made yourself i did <laughs> yeah ah <laughs> ah
1: yeah and so um so so there's that aspect and then there's other examples um in in this exhibition um of publications that are made that are sort of homemade that are made underground also because of repression Mm -hmm. so also because like they have to be made kind of in secret um there's a sort of tantalizing uh i wish i had taken more notes because i looked and tried to find any more information about this online and couldn't find it about a kind of underground publishing collective that's supposedly published in Saudi Arabia in the eighties, Iran in the nine, no, Iran in two thousand and nine, and Palermo in the nineties. Like it sounded so fascinating, and I can't find any trace of it online. Hmm. Um, uh, And and then there was examples of like uh, books and writing that was made in prison. Um, So uh, one one of the examples being the prison diaries of Sonala Ibrahim right uh-huh. uh the egyptian writer yeah, i'm sure you're yeah you you you're familiar with 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 that book which he kind of wrote on all sorts of found materials and uh and smuggled out of prison and he also i think made a book in prison that he like wrote with mercurochrome red ink and like made the you know stuck the pages together with bread paste and like made the cover out of cigarette cartons. Like I mean, frankly, I would I would pay like so much to see this book. Like I would just love to see this like handmade prison novel that he that he made back then. Uh, so there's that that kind of also uh, self publishing because you're not
0: allowed to publish in the traditional channels, right? Yeah, and I, I think I have heard you know some Egyptian women prisoners make writing their their uh, works with makeup.
1: Yeah, yeah, this idea of like you know sort of also being very creative about the materials that you can use uh, to to make a book. Um, oh, what else? Oh, so so then um, there was also a lovely room that was dedicated to a lot of the books produced by this Bay Area based. Uh, publishing house called Post Apollo Press, which was actually set up by a Lebanese artist, um, uh, Simone Fatal, who left Lebanon in the 80s and and moved to California and then published a lot of European, Mediterranean and Arab artists, including notably Etel Adnan. She published a lot of her poetry collections. Um, And so they had a bunch of those books just out for you to peruse. And correspondence between the editor and the various artists about like them submitting things and, you know, discussing like when it would come out and how it would be, uh you, you know, some of the like choices about how it'd be laid out and so, and, and, and
0: so on and so forth. So that was also really nice. And uh, I, I believe I read in Kaylin's piece that there was also an area for like Souffle and other magazines like that, that were um, more... Uh, traditional magazines, let's say. Yeah, I didn't see that in Amman,
1: but it may be that the iteration of this uh, okay. uh, show was was slightly different in the two cities. But yes, of course, I mean, I think you kind of can't discuss uh, independent publishing, the history of independent publishing in the region without discussing certain magazines. And Souffle, the Moroccan magazine from the 1960s, would be one of those. It was just this really avant-garde, uh, magazine that also sort of um, like so many very notable poets and writers and visual artists contributed to, um, and that right. Then- I mean, the,
0: the tremendous importance of magazines in this period with Shair, Sufla Huard, and, and all these big magazines where, uh, well, small, big magazines that major authors were contributing to. Right. So, so and and
1: shar and Hewar are in Lebanon, is uh, in Morocco. I'm sure there are other examples that, that I can't think of now. There's also, there was a very interesting project, and I think it's referenced in this exhibition, which was um, uh, an archive was put together um, in a university in France a couple of years ago of um, non-Western, cultural magazines um, and they had an exhibition in Rabat a few years ago and it, and it was just astounding to see the, the, the scholar who put this together was Zahia Rahmani and the the breadth of, of publications and they, they're mostly taking place in like the 60s and 70s it's very much a kind of explosion of this kind of publication at the end of colonialism or toward mm. you know I think as part of the struggle against colonialism and then post you know after after the end of it in in these moments of like looking for like national identity like uh, uh their own a, a, a local formulation of modernity these kinds of things um so but the covers are so beautiful like and and mm. the and the masses are just like amazing uh you just the design everything they they look uh so great these magazines
0: Right, right. It's, it's funny because um, in, in the book uh, City of Beginnings by Robin Creswell, he talks about this impulse to, to magazine as both, you know, a kind of a mode of professionalization, authors seeking their place in the world of, uh, in, on the map of world literature, but also as, uh, as an adventure, you know, as, as a way of seeing who you are. I
1: mean, yeah, I think that's what magazines in general, I mean, I think one of the things that's appealing about them, I mean, and we're talking about the ones we're talking about right now are specifically also like these really, you know, avant-garde kind of unique projects. but. In the moment, they were just a bunch of young friends, like getting together and doing something um and 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 they happened to, to to be but they weren't yet when they started out like some of the most prominent artists of their generation. I think what's lovely about a magazine is this collective project aspect to it that it always has
0: mm-hmm. is
1: the way it like all the contributors are in conversation with each other and they're sort of formulating their editorial and aesthetic and political positions together article after article meeting after meeting discussion after discussion right like you're kind of and then they're in conversation with their readers um who are sort of responding
0: to what's being published right and i think um one of the thi- i think one of the important things to mention is when we look back at Shayir and Sufla and these the big magazines of this era. There were hundreds, there were thousands of other ones that were also a necessary part of this ecosystem. Um, that maybe rose up for an issue, two issues. I see all kinds of interviews uh, with writers who say they published a magazine for two issues and then it disappeared after that. Um, that this kind of experimentation is such an important part to writing. It's a space to play, and another thing is, is that I think um, it's possible that in twenty years, when people are doing a podcast or whatever people do in twenty years, and looking back, people will say uh, around the era of two thousand eleven that there was also uh, there has been in in this decade an explosion of literary magazines. Um. In, in response to different movements, uh, not necessarily. I mean, the so the public source just launched in in Beirut, and with dispatches from the October Revolution, there are all sorts of these new comics collectives, which you know, as you say, have this kind of mode of working together on a project: uh, Skifkif and Samandal and Tuk Tuk and Garage and Fanzine. Um, Although I would categorize those,
1: I mean, slightly differently from the kinds of just because, you know, they're not formulating criticism or essays or, you know, because it's just a different format, like they're not articulating positions in writing on the issues of the day or on
0: aesthetic issues. But I think they are addressing the issues of the day and aesthetic issues and there are some, I mean, even the, the sort of the choice of the vernacular in which to write in is a sort of a, an aesthetic throwdown and the choice to, to do something in this kind of comics, uh, comics aesthetic, you know, in, in an, in an aesthetic that is more accessible to, you know, whatever the ordinary reader, um, because see, for, for, you know, the, the Arabic literary establishment, did not create space for, um, you know, the adib shabeb guy did not has not created space for for popular literature in this in the same way that some other languages have, um, and so this movement towards comics collectives is also a movement towards, you know, I, I, many of them have a more sort of avant garde uh, artistic sensibility, but also a movement towards. Um, uh you know something that is open to a wide range of readers,
1: yeah, I mean when I'm thinking of magazine sort of publications now that are interesting and are not um that are in, that are some form of independent, mostly online publishing, but not necessarily, for example, there's Nejma that's published in Tangier, that's a bilingual, sometimes trilingual. Uh, v vi- you know literary and cultural magazine that's was founded by by uh, Simon Pierre Hamelin who works at the the famous historical Tangier uh, bookstore the Librairie des colonnes and he's it's it's quite lovely it's really a very lovely like quarterly magazine mm. I think and they publish in Arabic and French and English and Spanish sometimes like it's very Tangerine in that sensibility of of over having including many many languages um i think i i think madam though it's a news publication some of its cultural writing is like really really interesting and i mean we you know the essay that we highlighted a, a couple episodes ago uh by their culture editor yasmin zahdi uh you know they they, they have kind of a kind of writing that you don't find anywhere else which i think is one of my definitions of what makes w- w- you know a good independent magazine is that you is that you find something there that you don't find anywhere else like right. a sensibility or a take or a subject or an article or something and there's something a little revelatory about it um uh, yeah,
0: there are other ones that I okay. So there's Rusted Radishes, which uh, it comes out of the American University in Beirut. Mm. Hadita, which is in Palestine, which was started by al Um uh, Maisif, which is a music magazine, but also a literary ma- also invites writers to write about music and and its literary writing about music. Um, you're going to have a lot of work with the show notes on this episode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. No, no, I mean we got a we got a link to all of these. I I like this, you know, uh sort of impromptu uh mapping that that you're doing right now of 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 different publications. Um I think also something something like uh like like Heber in here in in uh in Jordan sometimes has articles that are more like essays and uh sort of uh they had this lovely article about the pronunciation of the cough in Jordan which i found so fascinating and was sort of a combination mm-hmm. of a scholarly article and a personal essay and uh uh was 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 really quite quite nice so yeah i think also online because some of things are published online now um you know publications have a wide spectrum of content like I mean, some are specialized, but some are doing news and, you know, cultural analysis and sort of almost artistic, you know, running translations, running, you know, short stories. And, you know, so they're, so they're doing quite a, a sort of mix of, of different kinds of content.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, uh, I don't know. I think it, it maybe reflects a, an interest in a new sort of engaged uh, literature right you know that that is tied in to some cultural and political commentary and yeah a wide range of different forms
1: the The one thing I would say about the older magazines I'm not familiar uh with the the content of the lebanese ones as much but but Soufle, I think was really it was not literary in that sense of being kind of like above right of being. I mean it had this big question of language because it was written in French originally and then eventually they 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 also created an Arabic version of it um but it was the whole project was like how to connect how to create a Moroccan culture that's really Moroccan I mean sort of how how to connect uh uh, a, a, a lo- uh, how, how to not choose between, like, folklore and tradition and this, like, completely Western-defined modernity, how to come up with, like, a third, you know, local form of art uh that would actually speak to people in Morocco at that time. Um, right. So, so it wasn't, I mean, they were trying, you know, whether they succeeded or not. uh, uh It was engaged in a sense of, like, really trying to find... An audience and not, I think, speaking from on high. And, the, right. and then what happened to them is also they were like, they became more and more politicized. And as Morocco entered the years of lead, they were eventually, the magazine was shut down and they were all put on trial. And some of them sentenced to long jail sentences uh, for publishing this culture magazine, which is really quite an extreme form of censorship,
0: yeah, I think Shire maybe uh, differently, uh, or at least this is Robin Cresswell's argument in, in City of Beginnings, um, came up as a magazine against engaged literature. So uh, as a magazine where the idea was we are creating um, independent literature, we are not politically aligned in any way, um, we are art for art's sake. And and of course, his argument is also that the, it created its own sort of politics. That you know, it did not it did not result in in a depoliticized magazine. Mm. Um. So it, so, if, go ahead.
1: No, I was just just going to ask a little bit more about this book. So mm. this book is a is a is a is a history in particular of the magazine. Shear which was founded by Adonis and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting who the other uh Yusuf al-Khal. Um so it's 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 sort of a it's sort of a history of the publication and obviously all the people involved with it and Beirut at that time and the sort of literary scene.
0: Yeah, I mean basically it is a contribution to the study of of mo- literary modernism, which has been so focused on European literary modernism by mm-hmm. Uh, by expanding to literary modernism as it was centered in Beirut but also necessarily of course Shair was a magazine where contributors were all around the region um, and, and they had you know Abadr Shekhar Al was a contributor from from uh, from Iraq and and um and they had many people but it was sent but it was centered in Be- Beirut and there were a couple of passages if you don't mind that I wanted to Read from the the book, and then we can talk a little bit more about um, what its project is and how it relates okay. to these. Uh,
1: and the book also touches on the magazine Hawar, which was sort of has become a, a famous case of a cultural project, but that whose funding
0: was so controversial that it that it sunk it. Is that also discussed? Yes. So the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Which was basically a front group for the CIA uh, in the post-war period was they set up all kinds of literary magazines, um, Encounter in 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 the UK and and then they were also interested in setting up these kind of literary projects in in Asia in Africa in the Middle East, um, you know, with this particular push towards you know, uh, their definition of what literature should and shouldn't do. A- and I think, you know, they 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 often made an argument that while they funded these publications, while they funded jazz festivals and all sorts of other things as to export American culture, they did not right. meddle. They had a kind of a hands-off approach. But I think um, this book by Robin Creswell's City of Beginnings shows that they definitely did indeed medal, that Hiwar and and Shire, which was funded only for, um, I think, maybe a couple of issues, did produce brilliant literature, but that definitely that the CCF was trying to have an effect on, on how it was crafted and how it was distributed and what it meant. I think ultimately, they did not fun Shire, even though they had a kind of a dance with Shire in the beginning and they moved to hiwar uh, which the editor and chief was tofiq sayyeg um, because they adonis and yusuf al-khal they felt weren't representative enough of the region and um <laughs> um in in a letter um Hunt, uh, From the CCF said, as a responsible editor, I wish to have a Muslim. So he sort of insisted um, in this, in in it being representative in that way.
1: I mean, it's a very strange story because it's not really clear what the CIA thought they were going, they were accomplishing. Like, what what measurable goal they thought they could accomplished by 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 funding these culture magazines of course Soviet Russia was also funding cultural projects and cultural magazines so maybe that was just like well if they have theirs we need to have ours um (laughs) well it's interesting that that was that was true they were they were were both actively doing things in 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 this region and and elsewhere including funding cultural projects and the the you know what's sort of sad about the Hawar case is as far as I understand, it, what they were funded without knowing it by the CIA. I mean, the, the CIA set up this front organization, and the publications took the money from the front organization. And it's I don't think, certainly in the beginning, knew what the ultimate source of it was. Maybe I'm wrong.
0: Yeah, they certainly knew that it was from the CCF and I think they had some notion of what their goals were, whether or not they knew it was from the Central Intelligence Agency per se. I guess what's interesting is that um, that interesting art was created out of the Soviet aligned engaged literary magazines, out of the CIA funded magazines. um, That Yes, they were definitely trying to meddle and they were, you know, trying to further their political goals. But in the end, uh, their money just helped fund some amazing literature. Right. So, I mean, that's...
1: And and I heard a talk about this whole... The whole history of Huar by the Lebanese curator Rasha Salti. And she said... um, I mean, also, when it was eventually revealed by a New York Times article that the CIA had funded this magazine, it collapsed. The editor left Lebanon in disgrace. I mean, it was a huge scandal. Um, and I think, you know, it's an interesting case. It also shows that people's paranoia about things being secretly funded by the CIA has like a really strong historical basis, uh, you know, in, including in the cultural field. But she concluded her talk by saying that like in the nineties in Lebanon, when she and and others uh, started uh, creating cultural projects and institutions and applying for funding to international donors, I mean, it's obviously not the CIA, but some people consider the Ford foundation or things like that as just as problematic like an older generation told them that they shouldn't take that money, and their philosophy was, "We're going to take the money and do what we want." Now, whether right. that's something you can right. actually get away with is kind of one of the big questions about funding, I think.
0: Right, and how much funding determines what you do in, in you know, in the way it makes you frame yourself and apply for the funding. I, I mean, certainly, I think funding from any kind of institution like Ford Foundation let's say it, it gets around that they're interested in work that addresses women's rights in this particular way and so a lot of work is done around writing about women's rights in a particular way i mean i i, I think all of these forms of funding absolutely have some effect uh, um and the ford foundation is not necess- you know not artistically pure where the CIA was not. Obviously, the CIA did some pretty terrible <laughs> other things. But um, you were going to read something from uh, the Creswell book that speaks I to did, some of just these questions? About, yes, about the beginning uh, beginnings of this. Um, the CCF opened its Beirut offices in 1954 and the Lebanese capital would henceforth serve as the hub for Congress activities in the Middle East, where, as one CCF consultant opined, the intelligentsia is politically the most important sector of the population. The choice of Beirut is not surprising given the city's highly developed publishing industry, abundance of polyglot intermediaries and openness to foreign ideas and institutions. As one American spy wrote in in fond retrospect, Beirut had, quote, more banks than New York City and more newspapers in London. By the middle of 1958, it had more confidential newsletters than New York, London, and Paris all put together. All CCF-affiliated intellectuals who traveled or gave lectures in the region made a stop in Beirut. Um, so then to just skip ahead a little bit, the CCF mm. office in Paris was at this time directed by a CIA officer named John Hunt, a graduate of Harvard and the Iowa Writers' Workshop, his first novel, Generations of Men, was a finalist for the National Book Award in 1957. Hunt was keen to have a CCF-funded magazine in Arabic. As he wrote to Ceylon, a trusted advisor to the Paris office, I'm sure that a prop of this sort in the domain of publications is the best way of supporting our friends in the region and maintaining our presence. Hunt eventually identified Yusuf El Khal as a pub- possible publisher for the journal, which was to be called Adeb. El Khal's con- credentials as a fellow traveler of Cold War liberals was secured by his long association with the philosopher and diplomat Charles Malik, as we shall see in the next chapter. In the spring of 1960, El Khal wrote a letter of introduction for Adenis to the Paris office of the CCF. Adenis lived in Paris on a fellowship between 1960 and 61, boasting that Charyot was quote, the only magazine for poetry in the Arab world, and adding, we are now in the midst of a revolution in Arabic poetry worth being expounded and brought to the attention of the outside world. Um, So I I just think it's it's interesting how many things and how many moving parts there are uh, at this time. And the Iowa Writers' Workshop still does um, support Uh, with U.S. State Department funding, um, many writers from around the world, including from this region.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, like, you know, uh, uh, obviously, the intelligence services should not be in the business of surreptitiously you know, funding cultural ventures or they shouldn't be in the business of doing almost everything that they do. Um, but <laughs> the, the sort of, one of the other questions that this raises though, is, the, is, is the question of, you know, financial sustainability and the, and the difficulty, um, when you're, when you're publishing a magazine or or doing these kinds of projects, of securing some form of funding that makes, that keeps the project alive, right? Um, And I think, you know, it's, it's, these kinds of funding are nobody's first choice, but it, it, there's difficult decisions about like, you know, wanting to do this work, wanting to share this work, and then like, and 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 the the sort of financials of it are something that, like you mentioned, all the writers you know who contributed, who started a magazine that ran for a couple issues, or contributed around one that ran for a couple issues. So it's it's a field that's sort of littered with with these little failures because it's a very hard thing to keep. Uh, alive,
0: right? An independent Absolutely. publication, right? Yeah. When I saw that Sha'ir had run for 44 issues over 11 years, I was extremely like, I don't know. I, I don't think my magazine can make 44 issues. Oh God! But I, I also went around, kind of trying to look at some of these. As we brought up this question, look at some of the magazines that I read, uh, and there, you know, there are some that have. Uh, links to the European foundations that fund them at the bottom of the site, like MASIF. And then some like Bidet has their bank information on the website, suggesting you send them a bank transfer. I don't know if anyone actually does that, but maybe. And Recife 22 also, they've got more of, um you know, like a, a PayPal link on their website. But they're also kind of just I requesting mean, it- direct reader support. Right. I mean, I
1: think that's a model that a lot of publications are going towards is either subscription or membership or donation. Um, I mean, so the, the sort of magazines that I worked at in Cairo, which were news magazines, so sort of quite different from this, but were print weekly back in, you know, the early two thousands and, also like completely broke, (laughs) you know, uh, basically working on the basis of people being underpaid or not paid at all for long stretches. Um, Mm. which, uh, particularly the first, the first one I worked at, uh, which, which was, you know, obviously not okay. And yet was sort of okay when you're very young, only in the sense of, Yeah, I think we all still look back on the experience very fondly um, because it was such a formative experience and it was so enjoyable to be part of. And it's like, for example, where I met, you know, all the lifelong friends and my husband uh, and learned everything, like learned so much. Like my first job in Cairo was being a copy editor at the Cairo Times and just reading the copy every week was how I learned about what was going on. Um, so, you know, you, but I think, it, I mean, I think it was wrong, like the the financials were wrong and, and, and maybe impossible to address because it was an independent publication that was running up against, uh, you know, a lack of advertising because people saw no incentive to advertise in a magazine that was disliked by the regime, right? You got right. no points for advertising there. And then it was actively censored. So issues... Some issues were, like, held because the, the government controlled the printing press. They could hold an issue. They could lose it or hold it or whatever, so it would just never appear. Um, so those two things together made it, like, impossible for it to make money or enough money. Right. And so it just kind of struggled along because people get so invested in these projects that you don't want to let it die. Like, it, it's it's also – it's a li- once you've got it going and everyone's there, like – you get very committed to these projects, um, and obviously, I don't think media can work this way. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of a lot of culture magazines too, like, are, are just done out of everybody collectively donating free labor to the project, uh, and 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 that's how it that's how it works. Uh, and right, think, if anyone
0: has figured out the formula you know, of it, they're free to email us and tell us what that formula is. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, Arabic quarterly does get, uh, uh, does have a significant number of reader supporters, maybe like 105 or something like that now. Um, but that, the, <laughs> but that, that, you know, a small amount of money from 105 people is not enough to fund the, the time and pay contributors. Uh, well, and I'm just gonna, that. I'm just gonna go on the record here as saying I think that you,
1: the sub, you, you, what you charge people to get the magazine, you're not is not enough to make it sustainable, and you're gonna, I, I, I don't, I think you've, I mean, I think it's hard to figure out that metric, but like, don't don't you charge like two dollars a month for subscriptions to the magazine?
0: yeah well, and then the hard thing, of course, is that I don't get that whole two dollars a month because I don't have a yeah. and know, is that sustainable in the is that sustainable in the long term in the long term no, it's not sustainable to the forty four issues that Shire managed um. <laughs> no, I mean I think you're gonna have to
1: uh Maybe, maybe ask. I mean, the thing that's hard is like if you were selling a hard copy, I I mean, first of all, I don't think you'd sell it for two dollars. There's way more than two dollars worth of work that's gone into every issue. Right. There's like all the translation work, all the design. Um, And and I think also it was simpler when you just sold an uh, an, uh, an an object not not only do I love an actual print issue of a magazine as opposed to a digital thing which is a whole other conversation I can just go on and on and on about why I like the physical object um, both as a producer and a consumer but then the commercial exchange is much simpler you're like you want this thing here's what I need for it you know, oh, and Now, we, I will and, say and, and, and the absolute
0: exchange. opposite, the 100% opposite is that it you is like so... You like reading things online? No, 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 no. I hate... No, no, no. Of course, I prefer <laughs> the experience of a print object. Uh, absolutely. That, without question. But it is so much simpler to produce an e-book, an e-magazine, versus producing a print... We We make almost no money off of the print copies of the magazine. And probably we're losing money off the print copies of the magazine. Um, and then getting them to different bookshops around the region is uh, ridiculous <laughs> in and of itself.
1: I know. Well, that's the whole distribution nightmare.
0: Yeah. I'm- so, I, I, you know, any money that we make, we are making off subscribers to the, the e-publication
1: Right, but I still think I mean personally that you you have to charge more. That's that's just I I mean I think in the it, it, but it's hard. I know like you hate asking people for money and I and I think that's it's hard to have to make all these decisions yourself too, right? Because it's not like you have a business manager.
0: Right, yeah. No, um probably like many of these magazines that went for a few issues and and collapsed. I don't have that I don't have any desire to be a business manager, an accountant, I don't have a desire to make money. Um, I just want to be able to, <laughs> I, I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to become wealthy or anything. I just want to be able to, you know, occasionally go to the dentist. That's all. <laughs> Pay my rent. I not know. I don't have any big I dreams.
1: Know. You're not planning on becoming a magazine, you know, magnate. But <laughs> <laughs> no. I know. But that's the, I mean. That's the that's the challenge right now, I think, is because 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 if you don't have and now I'm talking more broadly, not just about, you know, your own ex- experience, but because once you get these things going, you do love them and other people love them and you become, again, so committed to keeping them going. And then um, uh, and and having independence and being and and being fair to everyone involved in them uh, requires uh, financial viability. Like my experience with the magazine in Cairo was, I I just and I know friends who've had similar experiences at independent magazines elsewhere in the region. Is is it also makes you really aware of sort of what labor, you know, arrangements you're you think are fair and sustainable. Um, and the second iteration of a magazine that I worked at in Cairo, people were sort of veterans of the first, um, and they were very clear that if, and when they couldn't pay salaries, we were shutting down immediately. And that is in fact what happened after nine months, although we did get to cover like a really interesting period for those nine months. But that was a sort of decision of like, we're not stringing this along, you know, any like beyond one issue beyond what's fair you know um and i right. saw you know there's this lebanese newspaper recently like the daily star has been just like not paying its staff for the last couple months <laughs> on the excuse that it's uh that there's a financial crisis even though it's owned by a millionaire like i think those kinds of things are really unfair i think it's a different situation when people volunteer their labor you
0: know what i mean when people really Yeah but it's a it's a very difficult it's a difficult thing, of course. So these great magazines that you talked about, many of them were formed as collectives of of friends, people who came together through literary salons or however they met and formed this magazine together. And th- that a lot of the labor was done um, on a voluntary basis. But then it becomes very difficult. I know that there are many magazines. I see... Uh, Job postings all the time for magazines, where it's it's a job in the sense that you do labor, but that you don't get paid for it. I would feel very, um, I, I I I could not post a job listing for for Arab Lit or Arab Lit Quarterly if I'm not paying them paying a person any money. Uh, so yeah, so these are all people who have come up to me and said, "Hey, l- I want to participate in this too."
1: Yeah. And I think there is that. I mean, I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily if it's a conscious endeavor, like it's, you know, if you're if you're if you know what you're doing, that's the way some projects maybe have to be put together right now in the commercial environment we live in. Like uh, and and where basically you are subsidizing something that you really like doing and want to put out with your other job. <laughs> You know? Right. I mean, I don't think it's fair or ideal, but I think as long as everyone is sort of, you know, freely choosing to do that, then there are rewards that are non financial to certain kinds of work.
0: Um, oh, a- absolutely. S- absolutely. Um, a- and I would just like to say that sometimes we talk about this metric of like choosing to be have um, you know, institutional funding versus choosing to be independent. Um, mm. I-, I haven't chosen to be independent. I haven't any idea <laughs> that there would be an institution to fund something like this. And I think there are many publications that are independent by default.
1: Right. No, I understand. Yeah. I mean who would i mean i mean okay it depends on the strings attached but most people would certainly be interested in in knowing if there's any institutional funding for their publications right um of course uh and uh but i th- yeah i think that is such a such a fundamental such a fundamental issue in terms of like keeping these projects going in the world. Um, and, and then the other one is also that often there are these amazing projects, they don't last that long, and then we lose almost every trace of them, or it's hard to sort of uh, find them, which is why this archival project, I think, was was really neat, which is why supposedly Morocco's National Library made digital copies of Souffle available, although when I was... <laughs> Going back to look at this yesterday, the link didn't work, so um, that was a little disappointing. But I'm hoping it's just the link. I don't know, um, you know. So, so the other thing is that th- there's something a little ephemeral about magazines and publications, and which I think is again part of their charm because they are more anchored in the moment than than books are. Like right. they are less timeless in a way, but what they do is they take you back to a particular time. And and, and, and with magazines like Souffle, people remember the first time they got an issue of it. You know, it's usually when they were young. Um, I think I can remember certain magazines that I, I, I love, like the first time I read a copy and just being struck by it. Um, I think they also have this communal aspect in that way where like for readers who love a magazine, it's like you discover that they're is this imaginary community out there somewhere of people that put this object together that you love and it speaks to you? And suddenly you become part of that group of, yeah, of, of no, readers I, of this, of maybe eventually
0: contributors to it. Yeah, no, it, interestingly, so when I was a, a, a teenager putting out a photocopied zine, I was a fan of this magazine called Broken Pencil, which is sort of a Uh, Zine Collective or, or, you know, um, pro-zine magazine. And Arabic Quarterly, our second issue, really the first that was designed by Hassan, uh, won an award from Broken Pencil. And I just, you know, it was one of those things I wish I could travel back in time and tell my (laughs) 18-year-old self. That's awesome. That I imagined being part of that community, but I wasn't when I was a teenager. And now I am. I know that's super cool. I mean, you know, like my
1: husband and I who both worked at, at, at these magazines in Cairo, like we spent years thinking about other magazines we would like to launch. And in a way, it is sort of I think one of my dream occupations is being involved in a publication. Like I just love the 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 discussion the camaraderie the sort of you know the debate the putting a thing together that goes out into the world uh and but but to me I've never pursued it very seriously I think because I I find it so daunting this question of how to do it in a way that that you know uh works uh right I well find, I think that's I what's great da- about a magazine I daunting, and so
0: I'm right because i have so, see i've been in a i think that's what's great about a magazine is that it does um it does allow for a little bit of just kind of balling something up and throwing it at, at the wall i i have thought for many years about what if i could have a publishing house what would my publishing house do what kind of books would i commission what what kind of things would mm. i create um uh, but that seems too economically difficult um, and maybe actually it's no more difficult than printing a magazine. But um, but when I, when I thought one day, what if I had a quarterly magazine to go with this? Well, when I thought one day uh, about uh, I want to just express something and I don't know where I would publish it, I went to WordPress and I opened up a blog in about, you know, five minutes. And then when I thought mm. uh, about opening up a magazine, it also was about a a five minute process of starting it. Um, so, so there is a way in which magazines allow this kind of foolishness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, so you have to just jump in and not
0: think too hard about it. I, I mean, I, I, I'm just, maybe I am generally speaking a jumper without thinking very, very hard about something, uh, which has its drawbacks as well, but eventually well, you have I think to think through things.
1: Yeah, but still it's not a it's not it's not it's not it's not a bad way to uh to approach to approach things and especially things that have uh that have a bit of risk to them. Um before we wrap up, I do want to mention that um so s- speaking of publishing that the um, publishing house or platform, Kaifata, which put on the exhibition that launched this whole conversation, also at that exhibition put out uh, two new um, books in their series, which are these quite lovely, small, portable, uh, little books. Um, and Kaifata means how to, and the ti- they're both in Arabic, but the titles are How to Remember Your Dreams by Amr Ezzat, and How to See the Castle Columns as if They Were Palm Trees, by Hussein Nasruddin, uh, and that's a poem, and he recited part of it at the exhibition. It was very lovely. Um,
0: so I can't uh, wait to get these new books. All of the books in this series, I have absolutely loved, and and they have been a little bit ephemeral. Some people have asked me, well, how do I get Iman Marcel's motherhood book? Um, I think they're all available on jamalon.com, but uh, I don't know. Uh, but How to Disappear by Haidem al Werdani, at least the The English is going to be reissued next month from Sternberg Press. So I think they're all still circulating out there somehow. Yeah, I mean, I was able to get them at this opening itself,
1: and I'm I'm sure. I mean, this is by now I think their I want to say fifth title. I could be wrong, uh, but clearly, you know, there's uh, they're, they're 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 going they're they're continuing with this um, with this project, and and I'm sure also working on like how to how to distribute the the books as as widely as they can, um, and. Uh, and also before I sign off, I just wanna remind our listeners uh to subscribe to the show, to share the show, to rate the show. If you like it, please. Um <laughs> and, If you uh, don't
0: like it, you really don't have to rate it.
1: Let's yeah, no, don't you know, don't don't <laughs> bother yourself. Um and, and also if you if you um if you speak Arabic to check out some of the other shows on the SOT network. Um, which are really excellent. Um, I think my personal favorite at the moment is probably Domtak, which is a show about uh, musical history, Uh, especially the first season was about sort of uh, singers, both famous and forgotten female singers. Um, And then the second season is about all sorts of different aspects of the music industry and music genres, and it's really great.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, thank you again for spending this time, Ursula.
1: Yeah, we'll have to, um, you know, launch our own magazine someday. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye, Ursula.